Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. This is, and this is Thursday, May 24th. 2018. Tonight, we talk about the single basic question that continually plagues us about virtually all foreclosures. Are they all simply fake and fraudulent? If bank lawyers are right that these are conventional loans with conventional foreclosures, why do you have multiple loan numbers? Why was MERS involved? How many people had a financial interest in your loan? Who were they? Why are you losing everything while bank profits are soaring? I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you make the effort and hit the the donate button on the blog or call us at 954-451-1230 and... Pledge whatever you think you can afford. Uh, We have limited staff, so if you get a message, please leave your name and number. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. We come down to earth and simply address the main issue. Are we dealing with phantom collectors of a phantom debt? The intuitive way of approaching it is to think that the debt can't be phantom because you got money. But that's not really how it works. This is not just a snowstorm, it's a blizzard. And I've been saying for more than 10 years, they might just as well have used the name Donald Duck rather than a trust or any of the other conduits because they're all fictional characters. When you refer to the case name or the plaintiff as U.S. Bank or Deutsche Bank, you're conceding a central point that is not true. U.S. Bank is not the foreclosing party. Deutsche Bank is not the foreclosing party. The trust, 
that they're naming is supposedly the foreclosing party. And U.S. Bank is merely lending its name to be characterized as trustee, which is what Deutsche Bank is doing. The foreclosing party is supposed to be the trust, which by law must act through a named trustee who has the powers to actively administer an active business or, as we say in the law, a race. A trust without a, a race is nothing. It's simply writing on paper. If there's no assets in the trust that have been given to the trustee to hold for the benefit of the of beneficiaries, then no trust is created as to the property that is later claimed to be trust property. This has been a basic law in virtually all areas of the law. Look especially at tax law, and you'll see how the trust has been avoided, etc. cetera, uh, because if the trustor never actually gave over the a bank account or the whatever asset it might be never went through the process of making the trust the owner of those assets, then the trust has nothing. And anyone who claims to have rights with respect to that property that was never given to the trust has no such rights. That's how the rule of law works. But, of course, we've seen the courts go in another direction. One of the reasons I do this is that I understand that a single shout-out is never going to be sufficient. So now it's 11 years later, and I have some 5,500 or 6,000 articles out there because somebody's got to do this, and somebody has to help the people who want to find their way back from the brink that the banks have brought us to. The trust actually doesn't exist, nor does it have any assets or business, nor does U.S. Bank have any ability or rights to even inquire about the trust assets or business, which aren't there. We are talking real smoke and mirrors here, folks, and that is what makes up one quadrillion dollars, more or less, uh, in the shadow banking market. It's called the shadow banking market because it's all shadows. It's smoke and mirrors. We know now that the banks funded themselves instead of the trust, which never really existed. The trust don't exist, but the name of the trust exists when you write it down on a piece of paper. So what you've got is an unregistered fictitious name by which the underwriter, so-called master trustee, which of course doesn't exist because there's no trust, is operating. So somebody is operating here 
using the name of the trust when it suits them. Otherwise, they claim to own it if they want to show assets, or they want, they claim to own it if they want to claim a loss to the government and get a bailout. All of that is true. We know that the banks covered up their theft of investor money by originating or buying loans with investor money and not with trust money. That investor money should have become trust money before any loans were purchased on behalf of the trust. If that's what happened, then securitization wouldn't have had a problem. And frankly, there would be no difficulty in the banks coming forward to say, look, we purchased this loan. The trust purchased this loan. Here's the transaction. But they never do that. And they never tell you who does own the loan. Who is the obligee on the debt and then there's the confusion about the debt versus the note. We'll get into that. We know that the theft has been the subject of settlements in which the owner of the of the the owners of many debts that are commingled uh, investors are paid off with cash and are involved in something called resecuritization in which actual loans were sold into a new trust like Zuni by a party who still didn't own them. So you're left with the same thing. There's nothing there. I'm not saying that debts don't exist. I'm simply saying that if you don't owe them to the people who are after you, then they have no right to start collecting. We know that the proceeds of judicial and non-judicial sale don't go to investors, but back to the so-called underwriters of non-existent worthless certificates issued by non-existent trusts that are registered nowhere and they're unfunded, no race. We know that the underwriter acts as master servicer for the Phantom Trust and using the name as a, of the trust as a fictitious name, a DBA, it collects servicer advances that were neither advances nor from the servicer, but rather a return of investor capital, even if it was the capital of yet other investors. We know that the trustee of the trust is not a trustee either in writing or in practice. If you read through the so-called trust instrument, the pooling and servicing agreement, by the time you get to the end of it, the trustee has no rights whatsoever to do anything in connection with the so-called trust. So even if the loans were in there, the trustee would, would not be able to actively administrate the affairs of the trust and therefore would not be considered a trustee under law in tax court or any other court. These are issues that need to be developed more fully in defense of foreclosures. We know that the banks are acting on their own behalf and not on behalf of the investors or the trusts. So why the different account numbers? 
Well, the simple answer is that it is possible to change loan numbers. There's nothing inherently illegal about it, and the change could be related to simply combining data between two entities where the loan papers or servicing rights are supposedly being transferred. For example, if Company A um, is the, let's say, the payee on the note and carrying the loan account that was established, and probably wrongfully so, but let's assume that it was right, um, and it uses 10 digits in order to create a loan number, then if the time comes that company A uh, transfers the loan to company B, then company B can use the same loan number or if its data system requires an 11-digit format for loan numbers, the loan number would need to be changed. You would get proper notice, and if you dug deeper, you would have found the three elements of assignment of a mortgage loan, a contract, a closing where the buyer pays the seller, and an assignment memorializing the transaction. Of course, we only see the final element, the assignment, and the rest is presumed even if it doesn't exist. If there's no contract and no closing where the buyer pays the seller, the assignment is memorializing a transaction that never existed. The question is whether the other two elements were ever present, and the answer, insofar as we are able to determine is that neither the contract nor the closing ever occurred. The one exception about the contract seems to be the purchase and assumption agreement that predates many of the old closings with loan borrowers like you. So the so-called purchase generally occurred at the time of application or shortly after closing. Mostly it was at the time of application because, as we all know, there were hundreds and hundreds of thinly capitalized company acting as originators um, in table-funded transactions where the actual uh, party behind the scenes was never disclosed. And even to the originator, the party behind the scenes that they knew about was just a conduit. So you have to go all the way up the line. That said, multiple loan numbers is often indicative of multiple transfers off record. So where undisclosed third parties had possession, rights, or even ownership of the loan documents. Generally speaking, as we have seen, in no case have any of these parties, disclosed or undisclosed, had ownership of the debt. One of those parties might have more rights to enforce than the foreclosing party in your present case. So among the questions that I'm suggesting that attorneys use uh, in discovery 
is in interrogatories and perhaps leading to requests for admission to ask them to identify all loan numbers, including the the MIN number, uh, mortgage identification number uh, that's used by MERS, and any index used in alleged aggregation of loans that have been associated with the subject loan. And to ask them to describe the factual circumstances in which each loan number was used and to demand that they produce all documents as it's defined in the request to produce that relate to ownership of the subject loan throughout its entire history and to produce all documents relating to transfer of any written instrument relating to the subject debt. That's just a starter point. Obviously, discovery, if it's done right, uh, uh, requires a good deal of research and analysis, and it is important to make sure you get your wording right in two respects. First, that they can't complain that they don't know what you're asking for. And second, that you don't inadvertently, by your question, concede a point that is central to your defense. So when you refer to a sale of the loan, you might be admitting that a sale occurred, in which case the assignment of mortgage is valid. And if that admission is taken into consideration by the court as evidence, without any more, you're stuck. And the court will conclude that the assignment of mortgage for purposes of the case is backed by a contract and a closing where money was paid by the seller, by the buyer to the seller. This is like drilling for oil or even drilling a well uh, uh, for for water, uh, based upon representations that the oil or water is there. You drill and you get dirt. You keep drilling and you just get more dirt. Then you drill as far as can be done. Either the oil is there, just like the paperwork said, or the oil isn't there and nothing was purchased or transferred. Here's a hint. If the buyer didn't pay anything, then the buyer was aware there was no oil, but went through the motions as a cover for the seller, who also knew there was no oil. I'll let that sink in. Just imagine. It isn't oil. It's the debt that arose when you got the money. When you drill down, that debt should be between a debtor that's, that's the homeowner, and a creditor, that's the party who actually loaned the money. If the creditor and the payee on the note don't match, then the debt is not merged into the note. The debt is still owed. But just because they withhold the identity 
of the party to whom you owe the money to doesn't mean they can step in and say, okay, you owe it to us. That's a clear flim-flam scheme, but it worked. God knows it worked. No debt was created when you signed the note or mortgage. A potential liability was created in addition to the debt, but no debt is created by a promissory note. That may be difficult to get your head around. The note is either evidence of the debt or if there is no debt owed to the payee on the note, then the note is evidence of nothing. Let me say that again. The note is evidence of the debt or if there is no debt owed to the payee on the note, then the note is evidence of nothing. And the mortgage secures the note. Notice that it does not secure the debt, unless, of course, the note refers to an actual transaction between the maker of the note and the payee on the note. No oil, no purchase. No debt, no purchase. No debt, no loan. Not to that party. The documents are worthless, fake, fabricated, or forged, regardless of whether it is non-existent oil or non-existent debt. When I say non-existent debt, realize that I'm not saying there's no money owed and that there is no debt. I'm saying that there is no debt in existence between you and the party claiming to collect on it. <clears throat> the fact that you have a debt doesn't mean that anyone can latch onto it and collect it. But that is what they're doing, and many times it pops up partially revealed by the existence of multiple loan numbers. Now, the important point here as a uh, uh, as I've mentioned to a, to an extent is that multiple loan numbers are in the customer and practice in the banking industry indicative of multiple transfers. Multiple transfers in the current marketplace is indicative of multiple parties taking a, taking an interest in the so-called loan documents, even if they have not taken an interest in the debt. So the point of this is, that in many cases that we have examined, there are undisclosed third parties through whom the paperwork trail is documented, even if they never got the paperwork. By the way, virtually nobody gets the paperwork, just like nobody gets the debt. These are all 
zeros and ones in a computer where they can produce anything they want to make it look that that way. And this is why in in many cases uh, where I am advising attorneys who are preparing for trial and they're preparing their objections and they're preparing for their cross-examination, this is why you have to know that there's no oil there, that there's no debt there, that there's no meat in the sandwich they've created out of this blizzard of fictitious paperwork. There will come a time, and actually it's already been happening, where legislators gradually step up and pass legislation, not for you, the homeowner, or the attorney representing the homeowner, but for the banks. Because the banks know, at least as well as anyone else, that there's nothing but title problems that have been created with these loans and with these foreclosures and with these modifications. Where, By the way, the modification is actually a scheme to divert the so-called loan from the parties that were first named as the parties who were bringing the foreclosure action to another party with whom you never did business and who, by the way, never paid for the loan. It's this way that they're moving vast quantities of mortgage loans or supposed mortgage loans and using it for resecuritization. But even more than that, they're continuing to make money by the sale of uh, subsequent derivatives and hedge products, credit defaults, swaps, etc., and synthetic derivatives, which are derivatives on derivatives. It gets to a point where the buyers and sellers of these synthetic derivatives, they don't even care if the loan's real because what they bought is a piece of paper that they're only going to trade again. So we've got a system that is aligned with the banks because the banks have paid for their access to Congress and to state legislatures. And we've got a law enforcement uh, mechanism at at the federal and state levels and, and regulators who frankly don't understand and have not taken the time to bother to understand exactly what the banks have done here. The only ones who came close were at the Federal Reserve, but they got to the point where they didn't care because they needed a vehicle by which they could do quantitative easement without calling it quantitative easement. So they bought these derivatives 
at face value and spent somewhere around $2 trillion doing it. And who'd they pay? The banks who were selling the derivatives to the Federal Reserve, even though they actually didn't own them. So provide guidance at, at, uh, at livinglies and at lendinglies.com uh, uh, to assist people through this maze. i got to say again, between the procedural wrangles uh, of, of court procedure and the complexity of securitization, <clears throat> I don't advise pro se litigation unless to do that. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.